Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today, I will be talking with Patricia Gandham and Zhang Yang Yi on their new book, Schools Under Siege, The Impact of Immigration Enforcement on Educational Equity, published this year by the Harvard Education Press. Much has been reported about the hotly debated issue of immigration enforcement. Yet the question is still to be explored. What is the impact of the immigration enforcement on schools and our educational system? In Schools Under Siege, Patricia and Zhang Yang addressed this question using rich and comprehensive data from their studies. More than 6 million school-aged children and youth live in a household in which at least one of their close family members is undocumented. In today's program, Patricia and Zhang Yang joined me to discuss what the immigration enforcement means to these children and their educators. In what follows, you will hear their findings with vivid examples about the challenges that these children encountered living under the fear of being separated from their family members. A lot of them are American citizens and they faced the challenges of absenteeism, trauma, bullying, among other things. Patricia and Zhang Yang also discussed various innovative ways that educators come up with to support these students, including the idea of sanctuary schooling. They offer informative suggestions to educators and policymakers. Their work also engages the general public in understanding the profound challenges schools and educators are facing today. Now, let's turn to Patricia and Zhang Yang, the authors of Schools Under Siege. So hello, Patricia and uh, Jung Yang. Welcome to New Books in Education. Also, congratulations on publishing such an important and timely book. So as, I, as we always do in New Books in Education, we ask our guest authors to introduce themselves first before we dive into the book. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and who you are? What's your passion? What brought you to work on this project? Uh, well, I'll begin. I'm uh, Patricia sure. or, or Patricia Gandara, and uh, I'm on the faculty at UCLA, and I am co-director of the Civil Rights Project, Proyecto de Derechos Civiles. Uh, I come to this uh, over a, really a career-long span of time in which I've studied uh, Latino students and English learners, uh, immigrant students, and um, as I've got over the last several years, certainly the situation with these young people who we call English learners has become acutely problematic because in fact, they're the children of immigrants and immigration has been under attack in this country for some time, but particularly during the last administration uh, 
And so it was really important to shift gears and think not so much about the language issues as the issues that are associated with being the child of immigrants in this country. And I will just add, Pondre, that uh, I, I'm not feeling really well today. And so I may have to exit before the end of our, uh, of our time. That, that's totally fine. And um, thank you for the introduction. And I'm not, uh, I'm so sorry you're not feeling well. Um, um, yeah, so feel free, like we, we will just have a conversation about the book and then really like feel free to leave you think um, there is a need there. Thank you. Thank you for um, talking with us about how you came to the project. Um, yeah, um, Zhong Yong. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for the invitation, Pongfei. Uh, my name is Zhong Yan Yi, but I'm happy to go by Joy. So I'm I will call you Joy then. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> I'm an assistant professor in School of Education at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Well, um, a little bit about myself. I'm, I'm an immigrant scholar from South Korea, meaning I have two countries that I can call home. I'm a teacher educator as well um, in the um, teacher education department where I work with teachers and teacher scholars from traditional public charter to private schools um, to speak more about my students. Uh, the majority of uh, uh, my students, they work in Los Angeles, most challenging school communities serving marginalized um, and disadvantaged populations in many ways. And um, the, the story and experiences uh, that we um, covered in our book, you know, that's my um, um, students' um, everyday experiences as well. Well, um, I would say my um, personal and educator identity uh, with, you know, um, my personal and educator identity, this project that um, Patricia and I have been to for the past years deeply relates to my um, um, personal and academic background. Oh, thank you, Joy. Yeah, um, you, you know, I think this is, I'm also an immigrant scholar and I have been doing uh, this interview for a while, but this topic and this book is really particularly, um, I found it relevant and I found it very, um, um, you know, a lot of the concerns that teachers expressed in the book are very um, resonating. Mm -hmm. So let's, yeah, so let's dive in. And um, one thing I think I've learned from reading this book is that the impacts of immigration enforcement on children of immigrants are really like multifaceted. So it's not only about those children and that's not to say their well-being does not matter, but it's a broader issue in profound ways related with school climates, bully issues, educational equity, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the book really offers a rich discussion on this topic. Um, I, before we start to talk about, you know, your study and, you know, some of those rich findings you presented in the book, I wonder if you could just give us a brief overview of, you know, in the most recent years, the immigration enforcement um, and just ask the questions that you raised in the first chapter of the book, is this something new? Why or why not? Well, I'll say a couple of words about this, that sure. one yeah. of the themes of the book is the way fear is used to control immigrant communities and uh, the parents and the children of immigrants. Um, and this is nothing new, unfortunately. Uh, the last administration under President Trump was especially egregious in just how far they would go in uh, creating fear for immigrants. But um, this is a recurring theme in this country. And really only more recently have we begun to look at this as something beyond simply targeting the immigrants uh, 
themselves. And I'm so pleased that you picked that up from the book that we were trying to make the point that it's a widening circle of impact, mm -hmm. starting with the immigrant family and then the children and then the teachers and then the schools and then the community. Um, so that many, many people are affected in a very negative way by the harsh uh, ways in, in which we have tried to control immigration. Joy? Yeah, I, I just want to add uh, a few things, what um, Patricia just mentioned, um, and I'm going to just focus on a more recent context. So during the first phase of the Obama administration, the number of deportations was simply astronomical, you know, but the target was very specific, focusing on those who had criminal records. Um, under the Trump administration, however, the target of the deportations became more broad and um, basically those who were undocumented, regardless of their criminal records, they were the victims and the targets of the aggressive immigration enforcement activities like randomized raids and, and abrupt deportations, um, things like that. So um, on top of this, um, like what just uh, Patricia mentioned, the way the Trump administration framed immigrants and conducted deportations was also demonizing all immigrants, dismantling their lives, of so many people you know, living, working, and raising their US citizen children in the United States for decades. Um, and I would say you know, more importantly, the Trump um, government's discourse around immigration and immigrants has been dividing the country over this topic, which is uh, still affecting many communities across the nation, which is uh, really a painful. Yeah, uh, I'll follow up on that just a little bit. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That, um, in fact, one might be inclined to think that this is something in the past now because we have a new administration that uh, thinks very differently about immigration. Mm -hmm. But the trauma that has been experienced by these children and, and these families in particular it's not going away overnight. I mean, they are, these children, these students are still living with this kind of trauma. And although the federal government has shifted its, uh, its focus around immigration enforcement, we still have in place across the country relationships between local police department, police force, and federal immigration officials so that local police work hand in hand and um, depending on local attitudes, much of this is still going on in communities around the country. Mm -hmm. That's such a sovereign um, story to hear. And I, I understand that this, as I understand that this is still the reality that many of us are facing right now. And many of the um, educators are trying to address um, well, you know, um, being overworked, well, you know, doing a lot of things that um, to support their students. So um, I want to, I want to bring up the topic about education here. You know, I think you, public education for the past many years has been playing an important role in trying to integrate immigrants and their children into the fabric of American society. And now with this enforcement of you know, immigration and with, as you said, uh, Patricia, about this partnership and everything we are facing right now. So um, we, what are some of the impacts uh, maybe we could just go directly into this, you know, key question that you are um, asking in this book. How do, you know, public education and how do children, students and educators, uh, how have they been impacted by the enforcement of immigration? 
Well, I think in just a moment that Joy will describe for us the survey that we did and mm-hmm. some of the key findings from that. I'll, I'll just sort of kick it off by saying that um, of the 3,600 people who responded to us, uh, that they had experienced uh, immigration enforcement in their schools, more than 80% said that they had seen this in their own classrooms or with their own students uh, acting out or uh, unable to cope with lessons in the classroom because they were so terrified about what may be going on at home. Uh, Joy, you wanna expand on that? Um, yeah, I think um, uh, we can um, also discuss the findings um, a little bit later, but I just want to go back to um, Peng Fei's, um the question about the role of education, especially in the public um, school context. Well, I think um, uh, given the growing diversity in globalization uh, we are experiencing, I think schools must play central roles in integrating students from different backgrounds. Um, in terms of race, ethnicity, religion, culture, socioeconomic status, and immigration status as well. Um, By law, we require students to receive a certain level of um, public education. Therefore, students and children must spend a substantial time of their earlier lives in school. Um, That means school is not only a place where they can learn math and science, uh, which is a very critical part of schooling, of course, uh, like, you know, delivering knowledge, but also um, a school should be a place uh, beyond that. You know, we really need to understand that a school is an essential part of the students' lives and should be a place where they can develop foundational social skills and expand their understanding of other people in the world whether they are from immigrant families or not. So I think um, we, I think this is a time for us to think about what is the basic responsibility and the fundamental role of public education as we are experiencing growing diversity and globalization in 2021 and in the future as well. Yeah, thank you, Joy. And I can see here, you know, how um, the topic about diversity and how the topic about mobilization have been, um, you know, integrated into the book and really make me think about, you know, the children of immigrants, they really come from a variety of life paths, a lot of different cultural backgrounds, and they bring wisdom, um, huge diversity and they are you know here to really try to um like they are a very vibrant and valued part of our public education Mm -hmm. so yeah so how um i mean um like we have been trying to um think about the findings and maybe we should um ask you to first of all describe uh, how you um, explore this topic, because it sounds like such an uh, um, important and um, challenging topic to explore. I'm trying to see, you know, like, for example, how can they, going back, again, going back to the topic that Patricia brought up about fear. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how, as a researcher myself, like I was asking myself, like, how, should I, for example, if I were supposed to study this topic, where should I start, for example? Well, I think um, um, that's a challenging topic, you know, for a researcher, but um, um, I think we can, um, I can start with um, how we um, um, embarked on this project, you know, back in 2017. So um, we, um, uh, Patricia and I, we started uh, working on this project in 2017 to explore what was going on in schools across the nation. And since there were some kind of limitations in using the administrative data to look into this kind of topic, we were supposed to develop and distribute our own educator survey. 
So um, we used our networks and we also received um, the incredible support from our colleagues across the nation. So um, uh, we reached out to numerous school districts and some educator networks from West Coast to East Coast. And uh, very fortunately, we ended up having more than 30,600 30, educators from 760 schools. Um, and actually, you know, 760 schools, you know, those schools, you know, um, that include only identifiable, you know, school names. Um, and there are some participants who um, couldn't leave their, you know, school information or you know, couldn't share, you know, their school information. So I think with those numbers, I believe we reached out, you know, um, around 800 schools um, in our data. And they came from, you know, uh, different states, um, 13 states, actually. So um, when it comes to, you know, different states and educators, you know, working in uh, different, you know, locations, and obviously, you know, varying levels of impact of immigration enforcement and, um, and support, you know, about, you know, the immigrants um, or students from immigrant families existed from context context. So um, through this data collection process, we made sure that we had a good representation among educators from uh, four census regions, that is uh, West, Midwest, South, and Northeast. And we also um, um, made sure that we um, had uh, participants from um, blue and red states as well, so that we can um, deliver, you know, more extensive and comprehensive understanding from educators uh, in different political contexts. Yeah, I think I will make just one point here that oftentimes surprises people. Um, uh, in all the work I've done around English learner students, uh, students who speak another language at home, people always, well, many people are shocked that uh, these children of immigrants are in fact native born citizens. I said, mm -hmm. well, you know, how right. is this possible yes. that they're English learners, but they're native born? Something close to 90% of the children of immigrants are actually born in this country and they have full citizenship rights. And therefore we, we begin this investigation with the notion that um, these terrible things that are happening to these young people as a result of these enforcement procedures is happening to children who have every right to be in this country, to, uh, to study, to, uh, to live out their lives here as US citizens. Now, those who are not documented or not born in this country are still, according to our constitution, uh, to be given a full free education all the way through high school. But it's important for people to understand that this is the future of our country. These are our citizen kids mm -hmm. um, that are undergoing this, uh, this tremendously negative experience in their schooling. Mm -hmm. I just want to piggyback uh, what Patricia mentioned. So, um, so um, um, I think in our project, um, with, you know, book project, in, in a published article, we um, did emphasize um, the important statistics about these students and children. Um, there are about 6 million K through 12 children and students who live with undocumented family members uh, in the United States. Um, and in our larger context, we have about 17. 17.8 million immigrant students. Um, and I also want to underscore the fact that, you know, um, as Patricia just mentioned, the absolute majority of them, closely 90%, they are US citizens. And for those who are undocumented, you know, numerous individuals study and work benefiting from um, the DACA program that was introduced by the Obama administration. But not many people know about these statistics. And, and I just want to add um, uh, just one more point. In our political conversations, 
these students have been usually invisible or voiceless. So um, as we um, um, were working on this um, project and study, uh, Patricia and I, uh, we did hope that you know, our book and the research findings can highlight these students and children who have been invisible in our society. So um, I see, yeah. So, 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 so thank you so much for like clarifying this point. And I think it's very important for people to realize the fact that honestly, you know, even for me, I'm an educational researcher, but even for me, like when we think about, you know, those immigration issues, we know that, you know, DACA students, for example, they have um, received relatively more attention in the past several years. And we understand them a little bit better, like their experience and the challenges they are facing. But I think one thing that we always, and we tend to, tend to ignore are these students who live under fear, who live under this unbearable pressure and fear that you know one day they may all of a sudden um, being separated from their um, family members, could be very close family members, right? Like their parents um, and their grandparents. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I, I hope that everybody who reads this book reads it with the same sense that you have, because you are really hitting exactly on the issues that we were trying to get at. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the invisibility of these students. And we do mention that, uh, I mean, people tend to know a little bit more about DACA and I, you know, nobody could be uh, more on their side uh, than Joy and myself. I mean, Mm -hmm. they deserve uh, better treatment. They deserve citizenship. But these 6 million young people, these 6 million students that, uh, that Joy tells us about have been largely invisible. Nobody's mm-hmm. talking about them. And of course, that was the you know, driving reason why we wanted to get this book out into the public. Oh, that's, that's so important. And I, oh, I, I, I literally like I feel them. I mean, I think it's um, such a great pressure. And it suggests it's so unfair that they need to deal with this in, uh, in, at a young age, so much younger. And they are supposed to, I mean, um, just enjoy their childhood, um, adolescence, right? Yeah. And as other researchers have pointed out, this, is, this can be a lifelong trauma. This is something that young people don't get over overnight or even ever sometimes. Exactly, yeah. So, so Joy, uh, Patricia, would you like to share more about those um, detailed um, NIH findings? I, I mean, six sure. million people. This uh-huh. is not a small number, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that uh, this is a perfect segue for us to discuss some um, findings um, that we found important. Um, in the survey questionnaire, we uh, developed we uh, focused on four major areas, like students expressing psychosocial stress, um, um, academic challenges, school and classroom climate, and parental involvement. And uh, we also asked how um, educators responded to these issues individually or at the school level. Um, Also, we um, uh, gave survey participants um, an opportunity to elaborate on their experiences and thoughts in an open-ended question. And we basically received thousands of comments we found um, um, heartbreaking and painful. And we discussed uh, these comments in chapter four um, in our book. But I will uh, jump into um, some of the important findings. And, and Patricia, please uh, feel free to uh, jump in, you know, uh, if you want to add more. So um, in our survey findings, um, about 85% of respondents reported observing students' overt expressions of fear of an ICE intervention in their lives. 
with uh, nearly 40% saying this was extensive. And these concerns stood out particularly in schools located, located in urban communities where many immigrant participation, many immigrant populations are concentrated. And I think we shared the one devastating story in chapter four about a student who came back after the prom, but wouldn't talk or you know, uh, talk to anyone or you know, eat anything. The educator of this student um, didn't know what happened to this poor student at that time, but later she found that this student's mom got deported even without having a chance to say goodbye to each other. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah, and um, on a similar vein, about 80% of educators in our survey reported observing emotional and behavioral issues among their immigrant students. Um, and many described this issue as interfering with students' ability to focus on instruction. And, and again, you know, as we discussed in chapter four, some students arrived at school crying after you know, observing their family members get deported, which is a huge trauma that can never be healed for their entire life. And these students feeling terrified emotionally and psychologically. And again, you know, they wouldn't talk to anyone or you know, eat anything participate in class, you know, focused on the lessons either. So um, that ruined, you know, the experiences um, that these students um, can have, you know, in schools. Well, in addition, many high school educators mentioned um, their best students giving up their college going plans or decreasing their commitment to schools. Um, even, you know, thinking about dropping out of school, you know, to get a job to help their family members because their futures were uncertain, you know, given, given what was going on at the time. And I, I just wanted... interject that the teachers uh, oftentimes mentioned that these were among their best students. Their students who were really working hard to get to college. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to mention one thing here, too, before uh, Joy goes on, because one can imagine what that personal trauma is like when a family member is taken away and uh, as, uh, as Joy was explaining, that it's important for people to understand that the, the students around them, oftentimes not immigrant students, were mm -hmm. oftentimes almost equally affected by this image that I have carried with me since we did this study of the empty, the empty chair or the empty desk as the students file into class and the kid who was the best friend or you know, part of their social group in for years, somebody who they cared about deeply from one day to the next is gone and nobody knows what has happened to him or her. It's mm -hmm. traumatizing for all of the students in the classroom and beyond and that was one of the messages that we felt we really wanted to get across is how this trauma just um, moves at, in a widening circle around uh, the students who are affected. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to add on um, um, another important finding um, um, following uh, what Patricia mentioned. So um, another important finding that we want to emphasize in our book project is that about 60% of um, educators reported increasing absenteeism. So absences affect the schools from individual to institutional levels. Schools lose funding and resources because um, average daily attendance is used to calculate to support the school funding for individual student, um, individual schools. And um, because the school funding affects the quality of education, teaching staff and resources and so forth, it also creates a vicious circle of underachievement. If they find it impossible to improve their test scores and narrow achievement gaps, and therefore, you know, they're going to be labeled as failing screws. 
Um, and it's immensely challenging to break down this ongoing vicious cycle, especially for Taiwan schools with um, insufficient resources. And there are other repercussions, teacher assignments, are going to be disrupted by funding and average daily attendance as well. And teachers, you know, they can lose their jobs when um, student enrollment is not sustainable. Um, and there are some other, you know, institutional factors, you know, that affects, you know, um, schools and school districts as well, you know, when this issue, you know, gets um, um, bigger and more, you know, comprehensive. So that sounds like, I don't know, I mean, after hearing your stories, I just feel like, why? Why do we need to be so brutal to our kids? Well, I will add, too, um, that a big concern of ours was the impact. It didn't start out as, as, as big of a concern, but it began to grow as we began to read the comments from teachers that teachers were being deeply affected by this. Teachers care about their students. And when terrible things are happening to their students and their students' families and students are disappearing or students are unable to get a hold of themselves emotionally, mm -hmm. uh, teachers are deeply affected. And we're experiencing a shortage of teachers across the country right now. And we, we could talk briefly too about the pandemic and the impact. That oh was. yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. But um, one of the questions we had in our own mind is how is this affecting teachers? And are they going to just give up on teaching because it's just too difficult of a job? Mm -hmm. And one of our chapters is focused on that, uh, on the, the impact on teachers and how this is overstressing them. Yeah, and that's definitely what I got from um, hearing y'all um, your words, Patricia, and what Joy just uh, talked about, you know, the findings and, you know, how directly this may um, influence or uh, impact uh, children of immigrants and other children, but also indirectly, this may, you know, um, impact the schools and the teachers and, uh, you know, the resources that are supposed to allocate to different schools in different ways. Mm -hmm. So so Joy, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the Title I school, because I think that's one important chapter in the book. And I'm not sure, like, you know, um, if our audience will be, um, will have a, a, a like clear enough, you know, understanding about what's going on there. Well, um, we um, um, focused on Taiwan schools in, um, in its context because um, um, often immigrant families and immigrant students, they're concentrated in this um, Taiwan schools, struggling with multi-layered issues and problems um, for decades. Um, so in our finding, in our survey and educators' comments as well, we found Title I schools compared to um, their non-Title I um, counter, school counterparts. Um, there are more increasing um, issues and concerns about the impacts of immigration enforcement activities, um, the impact on you know, educators and students. Um, it's more you know, devastating you know, compared to non-Title I context where there are more funding and resources, uh, not just you know, material you know, resources, it's more about political power and voices that those um, educators and parents have at the community level. But compared to um, non-Title non I schools, um, educators and schools, students in Title I schools, they are more likely to experience increasing levels of uh, concern, stress, anxiety, when it comes to the impact of um, um, harsh immigration enforcement activities activities and policies. So it sounds like Title I schools are disproportionately um, impacted by this issue. Mm -hmm. And then this would be like um, an issue of equity. 
Right. And uh, we, one of the reasons we um, highlighted Title I school context um, in a separate way, um, uh, focusing on just one chapter, you know, um, to, to discuss uh, issues around Title I schools, um, because we believe that, you know, um, now is the time, you know, and now, you know, more than ever, we really need to um, drive our message home on our priorities for policymakers to ensure a fair and equal education for all students, whether they are um, uh, in Title I schools or non-Title I schools. And when it comes to deciding our priorities, um, I believe our research findings um, can be used as um, uh, really compelling evidence to advance discussions around uh, more support for um, Title I schools and students from immigrant families. Um, so, um, um, and at the same time, I think, um, you know, those discussions um, are very important but I wanna see some actions uh, taking place immediately to ensure you know, um, important educational rights of millions of students and children in the nation. Indeed, Joy, um, I, it's, it's great you mentioned this um, uh, issue about you know, making something happen at this moment and how urgent it is. I think this, um, this is something we can talk more in terms of one, uh, the impact of COVID-19 and, um, you know, uh, the educational landscape just changed so much in the past two years and, you know, the remote education, everything. Um, so maybe uh, you could give us a little bit of, you know, like updates on how these children, children of immigrant, immigrants have been doing during the pandemic um, mm. and it's still going on. And then there is another issue of, you know, we are perhaps having this policy window here that, you know, we may have some resources, local school districts may have some resources to really do something for mm. those kids. So, I, I want to hear your policy advocates as well, but maybe we can start with the um, impact of the pandemic. Um, I can start, um, and maybe um, Patricia can add um, other points as well. Um, the pandemic crisis in, um, and its repercussions um, have exacerbated many students' education, um, especially, you know, um, education for students from immigrant families, um, as well as educators, you know, working with them as well, um, um, especially in marginalized and disadvantaged um, communities. Well, I would say students have observed some of their family members dying or getting severely ill due to um, COVID. And, and maybe they have seen, you know, some family members losing jobs or um, struggling with financial issues. Um, in many cases, students from immigrant families, um, they also need to be caregivers for their younger siblings, especially when their parents are not home, you know, to work. Um, and that was um, uh, particularly true, you know, during the, um, the lockdown phase, you know, when schools switched to virtual learning. And, um, and when it comes to virtual learning, you know, we um, have seen technology disparities as well, including the lack of stable internet connection, uh, laptops and computers, um, and relevant to human support, you know, regarding how to use and navigate, you know, the kind of um, device effectively. So um, um, this kind of technology gap, you know, stands out, you know, among students from immigrant families, um, particularly from, you know, low-income families. And these gaps and disparities have affected um, these students and their, you know, um, educational outcomes in many ways, um, which, you know, turns out to be uh, learning gaps. And I'm not sure, you know, if we can fill in these uh, learning gaps um, in the near future, you know. But um, um, I would say more importantly, these students have been traumatized, um, as uh, Patricia mentioned earlier, you know, 
by the loss of their family members and community members due to COVID. And they have been left behind in terms of um, social and emotional support um, that needs to take place at certain ages, right? And I'd say it's um, a more critical issue than you know, learning gaps um, that many schools are trying to um, catch up you know, um, these days. So um, when it comes to the, the different you know, types of issues around you know, COVID-19 and pandemic crisis, I wanna emphasize again that you know, these problems refer to educators because they're in charge of uh, working individual students and tracking down you know, their learning trajectory and other things on a daily basis. Um, so many educators have reported that they are burnout out um, and have expressed their conditions like you know, emotionally, mentally, and physically trained. So um, we really need to um, start you know, a conversation, immediate conversations around how to support you know, these educators and students you know, from low-income families um, as well as immigrant families as well, so that you know we can fill in the gaps and disparities uh, that have been widening over the pandemic crisis. Joy, I, I will just simply add that um, the children of immigrant immigrant families, in which some or all of the members are not documented, are wildly disproportionately uh, considered to be essential workers. They're the mm -hmm. people working in the meat plant, meat packing plants and in the agriculture and um, providing backup for health care. And so these it, it's like layer on top of layer on top of layer of, uh, of problems that were visited upon these these uh, students and their families when others were able to stay home with their kids the essential workers were not. And so they disproportionately uh, fell victim to the COVID and, um, and mm -hmm. with no real respite for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. I think, um, you know, we have um, seen quite some conversations about essential workers, but perhaps, you know, we could talk more or we could, we should visualize more those um, immigrants, um, undocumented immigrants who have been um, really working hard to make sure that the city is running and make sure that, uh, you know, like we still have food um, to buy from grocery stores, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, I'm going to leave yeah. you now. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Joy, Joy can uh, explain anything about this. <laughs> uh, uh, I would just like to add, though, before I leave, that if there's the opportunity to uh, dig in at all around the critical role that community-based organizations play and how they're filling some of these gaps that otherwise the school simply could not do. And as Joy was talking about the need to fund these programs for these, uh, for these students, um, it's obviously the federal government, the state governments need to step up and do more, but they also need to support these community-based organizations that are really part of the fabric of these communities that are uh, that are providing resources for these kids. And thank you very much, Pompei, for the opportunity to talk about this book. And I deeply appreciate how carefully, carefully you read the book and came away with the messages exactly what we were hoping for. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's, it's a great honor to have you here, Patricia. And we really wish you a speedy recovery. And thank yeah, thank you for doing this important work. So, so Joy, um, let's continue then. Uh, I think uh, I will just pick, um, pick it up from where Patricia uh, left, which is the community organizations. Mm. Um, you know, I think I've heard um, some discussions about the community organizations, 
but I would very much like to hear more about their role in terms of supporting the um, children and in terms of partnering with schools. Yeah, so when it comes to supporting um, students from immigrant families, um, well, I mean, while we um, had um, um, numerous conversations with educators in different locations and context, we found that, you know, the trust between um, immigrant families and, and organizations um, that could be um, schools and um, churches um, and some community-based organizations um, in certain communities is incredibly important. Otherwise, uh, these immigrant families, they wouldn't share their personal information, especially when it comes to immigration status, um, things like that. Uh, because you never know, you know, when the race, ice race, you know, would take place, whether it'll be, you know, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, you know, things like that. So um, the trust is an uh, immensely important part, you know, working with um, students from immigrant families and immigrant families in general. So um, we found that, you know, uh, a lot of uh, local community-based organizations, the CBOs across the nation, um, they have closely worked with um, students from immigrant families when it comes to offering more specific legal information or other kind of information, you know, when it comes to um, going colleges, where to get funding, where to get scholarship, fellowship, you know, things like that. So um, um, under the Trump administration, uh, unfortunately, there is some kind of a distrust between students from immigrant families and some schools because um, these immigrant families, um, they um, tended to see schools as like public institutions, which right. is um, not a reliable, you know, um, conversation um, partner, you know, to share, you know, their immigration status uh, and, you know, in status. So I think it's important, you know, for us to restore, you know, this trust again between immigrant families in, in schools um, as uh, um, institutions. And I think uh, when it comes to restoring, you know, this trust again, um, it is fundamentally important, you know, for schools to work with local community-based organizations um, hand in hand, you know, to develop more strategic and targeted support plans to help, you know, students from immigrant families and these families in general. Um, and also we need to um, think about, you know, the roles of the school district and the State Department of Education, um, because, you know, in, in some context, you know, um, it's um, um, too challenging for individual educators and individual schools to take the lead, you know, to, um, um, to um, um, develop the relationship between local CBOs and, and develop, you know, strategic plans, you know, um, helping, you know, um, students from immigrant families. And um, I would say, you know, it's um, also important for us to think about more supportive system in society. So uh, we should um, uh, really go beyond the schools. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we all need to work together, you know, to help our children and students um, from, you know, schools, community organizations, religious organizations to society, you know. So we should put our efforts um, together, you know, to help, you know, students and children, whether they are from, you know, immigrant families or not. So I think uh, it's um, uh, um, critical for us to develop more stable social safety net, including um, better immigration processes, affordable housing, health insurance, um, and so forth. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, and Patricia also um, discussed uh, uh, the same point as well. As we have been going through this pandemic crisis, um, I've become more aware of the fact that how closely we depend on each other, right? From getting groceries ready on the market shelf to 
delivering um, packages, right? So um, I do say um, we need to approach this topic in a more comprehensive way and think about what would be the social toll in the future if we ignored this issue or treated these, these students as if they are invisible. So, um, so now I think now is the time for us to take actions and develop more strength, uh, strategic you know, um, plans to support you know, these students from immigrant families. Thank you for sharing that and Joy. And I would just add that, you know, for maybe also for our audience, I I really what I really appreciate about the book is, you know, I think maybe the especially the second half of the book, we see a lot of discussions about the possible supports that, you know, um, schools, educators, teachers, and policymakers could offer and could move ahead and to um, support these children and to bring a better, brighter future for them. And, and to everyone, every, every societal member, mm -hmm. because, you know, as you have already demonstrated in the book, it's really not only an issue of, you know, one single uh, immigrant family. It's right. going to have this larger, um, effect. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the part about, um, I'm not going to ask you to, you know, repeat every suggestion you offer in the book, because I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. And also, I believe if our audience are interested, I should leave something there for them to explore. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I really hope that you know they uh, read you know uh, these books or mm -hmm. uh, purchasing this book would be better. <laughs> but um, <laughs> as I just mentioned, uh, there are different ways and strategies, and sometimes we really need to be more creative. Um, and I remember one administrator um, in our interview data um, saying. Um, she says, you know, let's get rid of um, politics here. You know, let's just look at children. Um, yeah. Um, uh, in many cases, educators and school leaders, they are extremely committed to protecting their you know, students and ensuring good opportunities for them to succeed. And I believe there is um, um, always a good solution you know, if they um, um, collaborate with uh, local community-based organizations or churches. They can also reach out to nationwide you know, nonprofit organizations or some kind of uh, networks to offer you know, information or resources uh, to help you know, students from uh, immigrant families and, and the parents as well. Yeah, see, like this is what I really appreciate about the book. It's not only about the sobering facts. Mm -hmm. It's not only about how you know, tragic it has been in terms of like how we have been um, treating these children or how, you know, uh, other children have also been um, traumatized by um, all the immigration enforcement, um, the tightening practice of immigration enforcement, but also, you know, you offer some solutions, you offer some directions, and there are ways to really think about that and to really work on this issue. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that part. Um, with that said, I've noticed that I have been um, taking uh, quite some time from you today. <laughs> and I want to, before we uh, wrap up the conversation, I want to ask what you are working on right now. Um, anything connected with this topic or anything related with this book? Um, well, um, educational equity um, has been the main theme around my research projects and agendas. So um, for now, I'm looking at some national data to look into hate crimes. And uh, hopefully I can connect this topic with um, educational issues, um, especially, you know, um, issues around immigrant students. So, um, yeah, so I'm working on that project at this moment. 
Cool. Is this also a collaboration with Patricia? Oh, it's uh, not just uh, by myself. I but I um always you know benefit from you know um, Patricia's um support and and insights. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, and we wish you all the very best with your new endeavor. Thank you so much for uh taking our time to join us. Um. It's a great pleasure to talk with you and Patricia, and we look forward to have you again next time if you have your new book published, Joy. Um, that'll be wonderful. Thank you for having us, Hongfei. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.